Amen. Well, Nick Kinnicott is one of the pastors at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Coconut Creek, Florida. Uh, Nick was the pastor here for nearly 15 years. He and I served together for five. Um, and he's married to Felicia. They have three children together, Eva, Avery, and Nicholas. And he is ABD at Faulkner University, all but dissertation. Um, and that will be coming soon, I'm sure, Lord willing. Uh, he's got a book, uh, In Praise of Old Guys, which it's becoming more self-serving by the day. But he did write it <laughs> some time ago. So you want to make sure you grab it at your local book dealer, Amazon. We have some in the bookstore, so um, make sure you grab that before it's uh, uh, out of date. And um, he's one of the uh, teaching faculty at Reformed Baptist Seminary. He's co-founder of Marrow Ministries. And in 2013, he founded the Institute of Pastoral and Theological Training in Egg Bay, Nigeria. Uh, obviously, for most of us, all of that is, is old news uh, but for the new folks among you, I did want to give Pastor Nick a proper introduction. Nick is a dear friend, and I am grateful to have him back in the pulpit to preach for us this weekend at our missions conference. And just one quick final word before I turn it over to him. Most of us here really do owe our commitment to missions in large part to Nick's ministry while he was here among us. Uh, and so it's fitting that we would have him back here to help us continue to cast our gaze to the nations. So, brother, would you please come and preach Christ to us, and may God be pleased to help us to labor hard for the harvest. Well, good morning. So good to be back with all of you, to see many, many familiar faces, to see some new faces, and I look forward to meeting some of you for the first time, and... Uh, I praise God for what he continues to do here. There's not a day in my household we are not talking about praying for the people of this church by name, and, uh, and we very much love and miss all of you. And uh, I was told I'm not allowed to come back home if I fail to mention that my wife and children all say hi. They're very sad they can't be here. Uh, there's a very busy schedule here at the end of April. So, um, However, they also wanted me to implore all of you to come to family camp in July because they will be there, and, uh, and we have a lot lined up for that, and we're very uh, thankful to continue to have the opportunity to do family camp. So hopefully we'll see all of you uh, this summer uh, again, but it is, it is great to be back. And I, again, I said this last night, I, came, I committed when I came here not to say anything negative about Pastor Sam at all, I'm going to continue to uphold my side of that because I am older and wiser. <laughs> I'm 41 now. I turned 41 a couple weeks ago. No one's mentioned, you're very gracious, no one's mentioned the gray hairs coming in, in my beard. I, for years, told my wife they were blonde, but I've had to, uh, I've had to be honest with myself at this point, but it's okay. Well... We are going to, as mentioned, we're going to turn our eyes, our hearts to the nations. If you'll join me in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And before we get into the text, I'm going to spend some time setting it up for us. Now, the story 
of global Christian missions is a story that hardly lives up to many of the romanticized, idyllic pictures that are painted for believers when we think about the call of God on the church to fulfill the Great Commission. Just prior to his ascension, we read in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that Jesus said to his disciples, All authority on heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Now, the church that Christ established has always understood this to mean that we have a mission. We have an obligation. We have a calling. We have a mandate from our Lord, from the creator and sustainer of the universe to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. We believe the scriptures that teach us repeatedly that there is no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, but if you confess with your mouth and if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Apostle Paul anticipates the concern that many people have here, and he writes, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so what do we do? We remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, as is often the case, however, in our sterilized environments where the gathered church often meets, we can discuss the commands, we can discuss the means, we can discuss the purposes, we can pray, we can gather resources, and all of this is what we must do. But when it comes time to put our feet on the ground and do the work, nearly every story you can read about or hear about with the men and women that God has used to bring the gospel to the nations will tell you that the work of cross-cultural missions, and especially in pioneer missionary settings, is the most difficult and dangerous work in all the world. It's not romantic. It's not idyllic. It's painful. It's often filled with intense suffering It's filled with discouragement and detractors and distractions and constant criticisms and even physical and most certainly spiritual attacks. Now, I could name a dozen examples off the top of my head right now, but one of the greatest missionary examples along these lines was the missionary John Patton. Now, there's a 450-mile stretch of islands between Honolulu, Hawaii, and Sydney, Australia that were called the New Hebrides Islands. They gained independence in 1980 and have been called since then the Republic of Vanuatu. On November 20th, 1839, two men named John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary Society landed on the New Hebrides Islands on the island of Aromanja. And within a few minutes of arrival, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. 
In his autobiography, John Patton wrote about this, and he explained, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. In 1842, the London Missionary Society sent another team, this time to the island of Tana, and within seven months, the team was driven off the island. However, on the island of Antium, two Presbyterian missionaries from Nova Scotia and Scotland were able to see tremendous fruit from their labors. And by 1854, about half the population, in their words, quote, threw away their idols, renouncing their heathen customs, and avowing themselves to be worshipers of the true Jehovah God. On April 16, 1858, John Patton set sail for the New Hebrides from Australia with his wife. And on November 5th, they reached the island of Tana, and by March of the next year, both his wife and newborn son had died. Patton labored alone on the island for four years, and in February 1862, he was driven off the island by the natives. He then spent four years traveling around Australia and Great Britain, raising awareness, raising funds for the work in the New Hebrides. He eventually remarried and went back to the smaller island of Aniwa, where he and his wife labored together for 41 years until she died in 1905, and he was at the age of 81. Now, when they first arrived on the island, it was very clear to Patton and his wife, Margaret, that their work would be a difficult task, and really, in human terms, it was impossible. This was a people group of cannibals. They ate their defeated foes. They practiced infanticide and widow sacrifices so the women could serve their husbands who had died in the next world. Patton, writing of the people, wrote this. He said their worship was entirely a service of fear, its aim being to propitiate this or that evil spirit to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They defied their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil. These village or tribal priests They were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies. They also worshipped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through their material idols of wood and stone. They feared the spirits and sought their aid, especially seeking to propitiate those who presided over war and peace, famine and plenty, health and sickness, destruction and prosperity, life and death. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear And so far as ever I could learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy and grace. So while Patton was there, he learned the language, he wrote in the language, he built an orphanage while his wife taught classes to women and girls. Together they trained teachers, they translated the Bible and other books, they They printed and explained the scriptures, they ministered to the sick and dying, they handed out medicines, and they taught the people how to use their tools. Over a 15-year period, they saw nearly the entire island of Aniwa turn to Christ. And Patton wrote, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. Now, we read about these kinds of successes, and we rejoice. However, the mission was not initially greeted with warmth and excitement. 
Prior to his initial journey to the New Hebrides, Patton recalls a respected elder in his church named Mr. Dixon saying, The cannibals! You will be eaten by the cannibals! To which Mr. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection, my body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The other regular criticism that Patton faced was that he was leaving a fruitful ministry behind where he had served for 10 years in Glasgow, Scotland. Hundreds of people were regularly attending his classes and services throughout the week, and one of the professors of divinity, a fellow minister, made his case, and he said, Green Street Church was doubtless the sphere for which God had given me peculiar qualifications, and which he had so largely blessed my labors, that if I left those now attending my classes and meetings, they might be scattered, and many of them would probably fall away." that I was leaving certainty for uncertainty, work in which God had made me greatly useful, for which I in, for, in which I might fail to be useful and only throw away my life amongst cannibals. Now, Patton was troubled by this prospect, and yet he was convinced that he must go. Now, as I mentioned before, while on the island, Patton lost his wife and his son, both graves which he dug by himself by hand. He was regularly riddled with sickness and fever. He endured many hurricanes, and during one of them, he lost a child that he had with his second wife. He endured constant threats upon his life from the hostilities of the natives. And in the first four years, he had regular encounters with those who sought to kill him, only narrowly escaping death on multiple occasions. Now, there's much to be said. I'm only giving you a small snapshot of Patton's life and work. I would encourage you to read his autobiography. It is a page-turner. It is wonderful to read. But when it comes to missions, what we often hear about is the successes, but not the struggles. But this is what it is to do the work of gospel missions. Far more sorrow and suffering than triumph in most instances. Many, many missionaries have gone into the mission field with noble aspirations to win people to Christ, only to find a constant flood of challenges that have led to their departure from the mission field without return. Now, this is not to disparage them in any way for their efforts. They're commendable. However, it is to say that we have to have a realistic idea of what it is that God has called His people to do. He has done nothing short of call us to give, us, to, to give Him our lives, to give our comfort, to give our resources, to give our sense of security and safety, to give up our nearest and dearest treasures, to include our very own children and our very own lives for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the nations. Now, certainly some mission fields are safer and more convenient and more comfortable than others, but what is universally true is that there are enemies of the gospel who will do whatever they think they can do to try to stop the advance of the kingdom of God. 
Now, I've spent all this time telling you about Patton and the trials and tribulations of missions because it's important for us to see that for us to really embrace and for us to really support and call on men and women to give their lives to this calling, there has to be a bold and confident vision. There has to be an all-encompassing purpose that supersedes the valley of the shadow of death. Otherwise, no one will ever go. If they do go, no one will ever stay. Many people will criticize those who will willingly give it all up for missions. There's plenty to do right here. Think about your children. Think about your safety. Think about your health. And yet, the Lord instills the proper motivation in the hearts of His people. What is the motivation to bring the gospel to the nations that triumphs over all else? What is the all-consuming fire that burns in the hearts of those who go and keeps their feet on the ground even when things get tough? Well, let's look. First Chronicles 16, beginning in verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works from among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Well, in order to recognize and to understand the scope of the Great Commission as it was given by Jesus to the apostles, we have to recognize that their understanding of this calling was derived from the Old Testament Scriptures. We tend to think that the call to bring the gospel to the nations is unique to the New Testament, and most certainly it is most prominent in the New Testament. And after Pentecost, the gospel was unleashed in a way that had never has been before. However, God's plan has always been to have His people declare His glory to the nations. God has always sought His children from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Now, I could have easily have chosen Psalm 96. This passage here in 1 Chronicles is a song of David. It's almost verbatim what we see in Psalm 96, only a few minor variations. But it's a psalm 
that calls all the earth and all of nature to praise the Lord. And it is included here in First Chronicles because it reveals the celebration that accompanies David's ordering of the worship of the people of God. It also expresses David's hope that the restoration of Israel's worship would lead to all of the surrounding nations also honoring the one true and living God. And so we see that God has always made clear that this is His agenda. God has always had a heart for the nations. And so look with me at our first point from verses 23 to 29, that we must see ourselves as God's means to declare His glory to the nations. Here we see the universal focus of God's aim. He says, all the earth... All the earth is exhorted to sing to the Lord and tell of His salvation from day to day. And the emphasis is on the truth of God's uniqueness. All of the nations outside of Israel had their own gods that they worshipped. And yet, it is Yahweh who alone exists as the creator and sustainer of the universe, the maker of the heavens. It is Yahweh alone who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. It is Yahweh alone to whom all the earth shall sing. It is Yahweh alone who is to be feared above all others. It is Yahweh alone who has splendor and majesty before Him. It is Yahweh alone who has strength and joy in His place. It is Yahweh alone to whom all the peoples of the earth are to ascribe glory and strength. It is Yahweh alone that we are to bring an offering as we come before Him. Yahweh is not an earthless, a, a worthless idol like the gods of the, all the surrounding nations, and so His glory is to be declared that all might see and that all might hear. The covenant community of Israel was never intended to be a limited group of people who were the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Great Commission is not an entirely new mandate in the New Testament. It is the natural outworking of the Lord's desire from the very beginning to have all the people of all the nations worshiping Him alone. Now notice there are two aspects to what David writes here. You see, the mandate is to declare His glory among the nations in verse 24. That's the first aspect, but that aspect is done in order to fulfill a purpose. What is that purpose? This is the second aspect. The purpose of declaring His glory among the nations is that all the earth would sing to the Lord. Verse 23, that He would be greatly praised and feared. Verse 25, and that the families of the peoples would ascribe to the Lord glory and strength through His name. Verses 28 and 29. But there's a very clear implication here about the duty of God's people. Declare. In other words, we don't have the luxury, brothers and sisters, of sitting back and hoping that the work will get done. We don't get to say, I'm sure someone will get to it. We don't get to be hyper-Calvinists and say, well, God is sovereign, so He'll figure it out. No, God appointed a means to fulfill His ends, and who is that means? It is us. It is you. It is me. It is the people of God. 
Remember again, Romans 10, 14 and 15. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, brothers and sisters, we have the blessed privilege of being the means that God uses to declare His glory among the nations and to tell of all the marvelous works among all the peoples. And here today in 2023, we have the resources and the ability to go to the nations unlike any other time in the history of the world. So what does it mean to declare His glory among the nations? The Puritan Conrad Pelican wrote this, he said, The means, sing to the Lord alone, not to any idol god or divine magnate claiming honor for itself. Rather, burn the statues, destroy the altars and shrines, withdraw their names from your prayers so that you do not swear to them in the least, but only bless the name of the Lord, the true God. Sanctify His name above all others and that alone. Make the gospel known from day to day His salvation. Preach to all human beings in the whole world and that the grace offered and given through Christ is to all believers. Do not ever cease from this praise, seeing that His salvation will not fail. Now, I know the lies that we tell ourselves. I know the deceptions that spring up in our hearts, and the immediate response is to hear all of this and to say, yes, amen, I agree with all of that. The gospel should be declared to all mankind. But where do we stop short in our thinking? We stop short of thinking that we, as individuals, really have anything to do with it, don't we? That's for the missionaries. That's for the super-Christians. That's for the gifted preachers. That's for the evangelists. Pastor, I'm not any of those things. So I will just pray for the work, and I will trust the Lord to use my prayers and my giving for His purposes for those who are called. But I want you to notice something. It doesn't say, the text doesn't say, ministers of the gospel, this is your task. It doesn't say, pastors and evangelists, this is what you are to be doing. It certainly is that, but that's not all. No, this is a task for all the people of God. And so when you go to your kid's soccer game, or when you have a conversation with someone at the park, or when you're visiting the sick in the hospital, or when you have your neighbor over for dinner, yes, the focus And all of this is primarily global missions. The focus is primarily about the nations. But let me ask you this. Do you have any idea what the Lord will do with a fitly spoken word of truth in a person's life? You don't. I don't. He can do far greater and more abundantly than anything we could ever hope or imagine. And so look, declaring the glory of the Lord isn't about well-rehearsed gospel presentations. It isn't about preaching a sermon. It's about being present and making known the beauty of Christ. Making known the goodness of God. Making known the powerful, transforming work of God in the gospel. 
And now you're right, we're, we're not all called to go to a foreign land to engage in cross-cultural missions. And you're right, you're going to have times when you, you try to talk to someone about the gospel, you're going to think you messed it all up, they're going to raise all kinds of rebuttals, they're going to have arguments, and that's going to make you uncomfortable. You may not be trying to preach the gospel to cannibals who ate two people just last week, but you're still going to be uncomfortable. But let's face it, the number one thing that keeps us from talking to other people about Jesus is fear. We are afraid that we will be rejected, that we will be laughed at, or that we won't do a good job. And so what do we need? We need a rock-solid confidence that He is worth it, that He is worthy. And so what keeps a man like John Patton and his wife on the mission field? What keeps men and women doing what they're doing in the face of danger, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of constant threats of death? What is it? It is knowing that He is worthy. Listen, brethren, we all know what the Lord has done for us. How can we not want that for the world? How could we not want that for our neighbors and our friends and our family members? Declare His glory. That's the mandate, and we are God's means to accomplish that. Now, of course, there will certainly be those God calls to do that in other contexts, to give up life as they know it, to step into the discomfort and suffering and danger that exists, But how are we a part of that? In what way are we helping them to declare God's glory to the nations? Yes, by praying, by encouraging them through our contact with them, by giving support and and, and providing for their efforts. I think one of the greatest tragedies, however, in modern missions is how much time and effort missionaries have to put into just raising funds to be able to do the work that they're doing. It's a tragedy. If you're not called to go, then stay. But if you stay, do everything you can to make as much money as you can so you can be as generous as you can to support the work of global missions. That is the call on Christians. And don't give up telling others about Christ just because someone else is going. Who knows what God will do? Who knows what future missionaries are yet unconverted that you might share the gospel with? We are God's means to declare His glory among the nations, but we also need a proper motivation. Again, what is that motivation? We see it in verses 29 through 34 that our worship of God is the motivation that fuels our desire to see the nations worship our God. Missions is not an end in itself. Planning churches and seeing new converts is not an end in itself. We rejoice in these great things, and we should, but the end of missions is that the nations would bend the knee before God in humble worship. We see that in the text. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him. All the earth, yes, 
The world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Brothers and sisters, our proper motivation is that the nations would have true communion with our God. But really, you, you, you can't have much of a desire for the nations to know true communion with God if you yourself are not in communion with God. The context of, of this song in First Chronicles is that God is dwelling among His people. And He has made a footstool of His throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was confirmation of the Lord's presence in and among His people. So God has promised to dwell among His people, to be in their presence, to be worshipped, to be enjoyed. Do you know what that means? It means, brothers and sisters, it means that God is with us. God is in our presence and He has appointed all of the necessary means to enjoy and delight in His presence. Your desire for the nations to worship the Lord to worship Christ, to bend their knee before their God is directly proportional to your delighting in Christ alone. It's directly proportional to your worship of God. Do you have an intimate awareness of what it means to live upon the righteousness of Christ alone? Are you feasting on the good gifts of God? Are you storing His Word in your heart and reminding yourself of the promises of God and reminding yourself day by day that we have a God who truly loves His children? Listen, God is not an abstract idea who exists somewhere out there. God is an ever-present reality in the hearts of His people, an ever-present reality in the midst of our gathering as His church, an ever-present reality in His Word. True worship isn't just showing up and singing songs and listening to prayers and hearing sermons. These are elements of corporate worship, but that's not worship. Worship is a holy delighting in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Worship is a tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And this is our fuel. This is our motivation for the nations to worship the Lord. This is the motivation that you must have if ever you are going to set foot on an island and face down cannibals and say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus before you eat me. And you know, it's a strange transition to my illustration here, but you know when you're eating an amazing meal? (laughs) You eat at an incredible restaurant, and the dish you're served, it's the best thing you've ever had before. Wait for it. Because it's a plate of bacon. (laughs) But you get this meal. They set it down on the table before you. What do you want to do? Well, it's 2023, of course. Before you do anything else, you want to take pictures of it and put it on Instagram. And you want to send it to your friends. 
you might be, unlike me, very generous and give a bite to someone else who's at the table with you. But you want everyone to see. This is beautiful. This is delicious. Why don't you come here and taste this thing? Taste this. It's beautiful. I want everyone to know. When there's something we love, when there's something we really find joy in, we want to share it with others. In the same way, if we are not finding our greatest joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, our motivation won't be there. Listen to this. You and I were enemies of God. We were people who cared nothing for our Creator. We cared nothing about the One who gave us life and breath and being. And in fact, the Bible tells us we hated Him. We did everything in our lives in defiance of Him because we, like our father Adam, loved ourselves and had a wonderful plan for our lives. And yet, what does the Bible say? While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. We were rebels, we were murderers, we were adulterers, we were thieves, we were liars, we were filled with all kinds of covetousness, we didn't honor God as God, we had idols all around us, we disdained the name of the Lord, we didn't honor His ways, His purposes, His day, His worth, or His majesty, and yet Jesus Christ came into this world and lived a perfect life because you can't. Jesus came into this world and died on a cross, even though it's you who deserves to die on that cross. Jesus Christ was buried in a grave and three days later was raised again to conquer sin and death so that, uh, so that we, his enemies, could have everlasting life when they turn to him by faith in humility and acknowledge that he and he alone is the King of kings and is the Lord of lords. So brothers and sisters, that is life changing, soul-transforming. And that is the reality that drives us not only to worship our God and delight in His truth and feast upon the great gifts of His hands, but it drives us to declare that reality to anyone who will hear because we simply cannot keep it to ourselves. Your worship of God, your understanding of that gospel truth, And what it has done in you is directly tied to whether or not your desire will be for others to put their hand in yours and lead them to meet the king. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah was brought to the throne room of Christ. He beheld the Savior in all his glory. And what was his immediate response? Repentance and then worship, yes, But then what? What did he say? Lord, send me. Send me. I will go, Lord. Send me. And the Lord told him, Isaiah, Isaiah, they will not listen to you. They will be blind. They will be deaf. They will not listen to a word you will say. They will hate you. But what does Isaiah Isaiah do? He goes. He went. Why? Because he had an experience with the living Christ that he could not let go of, that he could not be silent about. He didn't care if they were going to listen. He didn't care if if, if he was going to confront a lot of hostility. He didn't care if he was going to die. He couldn't not tell people about this Christ that he has beheld. 
Brothers and sisters, have you beheld the power and majesty and holiness and glory of our God in Christ Jesus? Have you shared such an intimate communion with God that it is so compelling that you have said, Here am I, Lord. Tell me where to go. Tell me what to do. Because everyone needs to know about this. Everyone has to know who you are and what you have done. Brothers and sisters, we we don't have to be transfigured into the heavenly realm to experience our God. He is with us. The curtain has been torn in two. We have full access to the holiest of holies. So do you know what it really means to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you know what it means to love your enemy? It means saying, look, I've been transformed by the power of the gospel. I have beheld the glory of God. I have worshipped at the feet of my king. I have been loved by God when I deserve to be cast into hell. And my friend, I want that for you. I want you to know what this is. I want you to taste. I want you to delight. I want you to rejoice. I want you to have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand. And when we really and truly know that we are loved by this God, how can we keep it to ourselves? And so, friend, I ask you, do you know this God? Has your heart been taken captive by this great God? You can know Him. You can be taken captive by Him. You can commune with Him. And so turn to Christ by faith and trust in Him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friend, if you do not know true communion with Christ, I commend him to you. Come to Christ just as you are and take hold of our great God. Brothers and sisters, this is our motivation. This was John Patton's motivation. This was the motivation of William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Jim Elliott and Lottie Moon and Amy Carmichael and David Livingston and every other missionary who has ever looked fear and danger in the eye and said, it doesn't matter, send me. They need to know, they must know, and I will tell them. Jim Elliott wrote in his diary, He said, I I dare not stay home while the Alka Indians perish. What if the well-filled church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust of their Bible covers. Missionaries are very human folks just doing what they are asked. Simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is our motivation, brothers and sisters, and nothing else will do. 
Nothing else will keep anyone on the mission field in the midst of trials. Nothing else will open our hands to free us of our earthly goods and treasures. Nothing else will keep us on our knees in prayer that the nations would truly be glad in Christ. Nothing other than true communion with our great triune God will continue to to fuel us to fulfill the great commission. And in the end, we can give thanks to our Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever and ever and ever. And so, my dear Christian family, my brothers and sisters, let us strive together with all that we are and all that we have to worship God in spirit and in truth that we would have the proper motivation that we need to give all that we can to ensure that the glory of God is declared to the nations that they too could know the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever, that they could join with us, with every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and declare that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship, and Jesus Christ alone is God and King of heaven and of earth. This is our great God. May we honor him with our lives and in our worship, and may we declare his glory to the nations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.